Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger on this episode of Jill on Money. Is it better to specialize or become a generalist? I think we sort of need to drop that obsession with precocity and get to zigzagging and realizing that the zigs and the zags, in addition to getting you towards your match quality, provide you with this breadth of skills and the world's changing and breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Today, we have a terrific interview. It is with David Epstein. He is the author of a book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And this may put to bed once and for all whether or not you should obsessively seek to become the uber specialist in one narrow category or whether you may want to go through life understanding that All of your experiences make you a better employee, make you a better human being, maybe even a better athlete. And don't forget to stay tuned after the interview for the Marcus Minute. So here's our interview with David Epstein. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. David Epstein, welcome to the program. We start with a simple question. You can choose either one. Okay. Your best money or career decision that you've made? Um, they're the same. Do it. And, and That's on, great. Honestly, it was my own sort of personal career zigzagging where first I was in living in a tent in the Arctic when I decided to become a writer. But, but honestly, when I was a staff writer at Sports Illustrated, I decided to leave for an internship at ProPublica, the nonprofit investigative outfit, because I didn't feel like I was learning enough about investigative reporting. And I said, I hope that my job as a staff writer will be here when I come back. So I went from co-writing the story that outed Alex Rodriguez for using steroids to photocopying stuff for someone else at ProPublica the next week. And it was the greatest decision I made in both ways because I learned a ton of skills that I came back with, was way more valuable. And then they offered me a job, took a short-term pay doc, hoped that my job would still be there, and it was. And it ended up leading to a succession of raises for me and these skills that made me totally unique. David has written a new book. It's called Range, Why Generalists triumph in a specialized world. And uh, as somebody who is a generalist, of course, I was immediately drawn to anything that reaffirms my thesis on life, which is know a little bit about a lot of stuff. So, David, you previously wrote a book called The Sports Gene. When you were lecturing about that book, something else came up. So, So talk about the reason you wrote this book and how it came out of the sports studies. Right. So in some ways, I'm, I'm glad this sort of affirmed your thinking because this project sort of began with something that overturned some of some of my thinking. Um, I was in the sports world where the, the so-called 10,000-hour rule, this idea that early specialization and, and in highly technical practice and whatever you're going to do is the route to expertise. And after writing a little bit about talent in sports, I got invited to debate the writer Malcolm Gladwell at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, which was founded by the general manager of the Houston Rockets. And it was set up as 10,000 hours versus the sports gene. You know, even though we uh-huh. have some middle ground, this sort of talent versus practice thing. Malcolm's very clever, and I didn't want to get embarrassed, and we'd never met before. So I, I kind of tried to anticipate was he, what he was going to argue. And I figured he would have to argue that athletes should develop with a, as early as possible, get a head start in, in technical training and whatever they're going to do. So I went and looked at all the research I could find that tracks the development of athletes and, in fact, found that athletes who go on to become elite have what scientists call a sampling period. Early on, they play a variety of sports. They gain a breadth of general skills. They learn about their interests. They learn about their abilities. And they systematically delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. And so when it came to the debate, 
and Malcolm sort of said, look at Tiger Woods. And I said, well, look at Roger Federer, who sampled and didn't specialize until way later than his peers. And the question really is, which of these models is the norm? And here's what the data says, that the Roger model is the norm. We just don't really acknowledge it. And afterward, he sort of said, you know what you got me on was that Roger versus Tiger thing. We sort of became running buddies and would talk about it on our own time. And that, that lodged in the back of my head. And sort of an, another experience where I was doing some work with a foundation kind of brought it back to the forefront. I said, this is a project I, I need to do. Because you open the book with the Roger versus Tiger thing and you talk about what ultimately becomes a real difference in what they are doing because right. golf is right. a sport that the ball's not moving. Right. And it's a series of repetitive actions, strokes that you do have to master, right? Right. right. Absolutely. And tennis, though, is a more dynamic sport. Yeah. And so is that the reason why the sampling or the early focus is not as important? That's a great question because the answer is largely yes. So in golf, there's kind of a dearth of data in golf, but I can absolutely believe that early specialization does work for golf because it is like skill acquisition scientists who study it classify it as almost like an industrial task. You're basically, it's non-dynamic. People wait for each other to take turns. You don't have any teammates you have to deal with. Um, you're basically trying to recreate known motions with as little deviation as possible over and over and over. And that's a very poor model, not only for the rest of sports, but certainly for most other things that humans want to learn. Whereas in these more dynamic sports like tennis, where you need what's called anticipatory skills, the reason these athletes seem like they can react so fast is they've actually learned to pick up on body cues very quickly that tell them what's coming before before it happens. And it turns out to build the scaffolding that helps you acquire those skills, you actually want this incredible breadth of challenges early on instead of this focused practice. And so I think golf, we should sort of drop it as Tiger Woods is the most famous development story maybe ever. Mm. But it turns out to be a uniquely poor model from which to extrapolate to other things. Are there any other sports like golf where you would see that kind of early focus would pay off generally? Yeah, I would think like targeting tasks maybe. Some, something like archery and shooting and things like that where they are static, uh, where people again wait to take turns, where you don't don't require anticipatory skills. But also in certain careers it would make sense. We'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. Can I just go back to sports? So you're now a new father. Yes, How do you feel about all these people who have their kids specialized? Let me just speak from personal experience. I grew up in a time where you did not devote all of your time energy to one sport. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you played, I played soccer and basketball. And then then a generation after me, or even a half a generation, all the kids were like, no, I play soccer, I play indoor soccer, and then I play spring soccer, and then I go to summer league. Right. So the parents have adopted that. Is there any shift yeah. in that now, or is it still that way? I, I would say it's shifting in the in the wrong direction for the most part in this country, but in the right direction in some other countries. And that isn't because, okay, the, the science is clear. The way to, the sampling period for all dynamic sports is totally the norm. But there are other forces at, at work here, right? Like youth athletes are customers for adults who have a very significant financial interest in keeping them away from other sports, right? When I lived in Brooklyn until recently, there was a U6 travel soccer team that met across the street from me. I don't think anybody thinks five-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people, but it's, you, you, you convince parents, right, that, well, if they're not on the U6 team, they can't be on the U7 team. And so you start this deselection process early where they have to get in the pipeline. These are customers, right? Whereas I, I played football, basketball, baseball in high school and became a university record holder in track in college. And I was just talking to Steve Nash the other day, the two-time NBA MVP, 
And he said he played basketball last. He didn't get a basketball till he was 13. And so he's exploring setting up an academy to incorporate what we know about optimal development. Unlike the U.S. where we have all these like like this like balkanized youth leagues, everyone's doing their own thing. I get it because if you're the eight-year-old coach, the coach of eight-year-olds, not the eight-year-old coach, if your incentive is to win the eight-year-old's championship, then fine, specialize those kids. But we know that the way to develop the best eight-year-old athlete is not the same as the way to develop the best 20-year-old athlete. But if your incentive is only for the eight-year-olds, that's a problem. So like in France, they overhauled their soccer development pipeline to incorporate sampling and unstructured play. But they made those youth coaches and said, your job isn't to win as an eight-year-old. It's to help us develop these 20- and 30-year-old athletes. But we don't really have that here. Okay, so now let's move beyond sports into other areas where you were learning about specialization versus generalization. Mm-hmm. And so where did you go after sports? So this is like, this was your entryway in. What did you think about next for what would be the uh, a good test case? Well, the first thing that came to mind after sports, frankly, was music because having written in sort of that genre of, of performance books before, I, I realized that sports and music were kind of the most associated in public consciousness with early specialization. You know, the, the Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother book starts on page one with promising the secrets to raising successful kids. And, and part of the list is about music. The, the daughters must play piano or violin. They can't play any other instrument. Five hours of practice a day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Later in the book, of course, uh, the talented one quits. I, I knew that that was, that was a domain that I would be remiss not to take on if I was talking about specialization. So it was an obvious next step from sports. There are some areas where it does make sense. So yep. you're not saying don't practice. Nope. You're, oh, absolutely. And not. you're not. So I, I just worry that sometimes people are going to like look at this and see like and then like, oh, all right, then I don't. Have to. No, you still have to bring your same discipline, but yeah. just to different things. I think you you just hit on one of the challenges for me as I talk about this book, which is differentiating what I'm calling a generalist here from just a dilettante who isn't that interested in or or that good at anything. Right. The kind of generalist I'm profiling here. And, and one of the reasons it's sort of late in the book that I start getting into scientists is because most people view them as the epitome of specialization, right? So I wanted to say, like, look, here are these people who have depth in an area for sure, and yet instead of getting deeper and more narrow, made their contributions because they harnessed these, this power of what I call range, even within what's normally a specialized area. One of the things that caught my eye about this is that when kids or even adults are struggling to find an answer, now, you know, you have um, almost like an instant ability to get to the conclusion. But getting that conclusion without struggle is actually not advancing your learning. Can you explain that? And this kind of gets to what I think is a theme of the book and one that was deeply counterintuitive to me, which is that practices and habits of mind that can cause the most rapid improvement, whether this is in your work, in sports, in music, or here just in learning generally in that, in that chapter, can systematically undermine your long-term development. That's deeply counterintuitive, that you can see progress before your eyes and somehow that's undermining you going forward. So, so this actually gets to, I don't want to go too far aside here, but in that chapter is one of the studies that to me was the most surprising in the entire book, which was done at the United States Air Force Academy. And, and it was a study that you could not set up in any other way. So the Air Force Academy brings in freshman class every year. The students also take a sequence of three math courses. Calculus 1, Calculus 2, so on. And they are randomized to professors in Calculus 1. Then they are re-randomized in Calculus 2 and then re-randomized again. So it's this incredible experimental condition, thousands of students, about 100 professors. 
what the researchers wanted to look at the impact of teaching. And what the researchers concluded was those teachers who taught the most narrow curriculum, the so-called using procedures knowledge, produced students who were really well prepared for that test, but then could not connect that knowledge to broader concepts going forward. So they were hampered going forward. And that's kind of a theme of this chapter where I talk about so-called desirable difficulties, where you actually want to put in the way of the learner these types of obstacles that cause them to be frustrated, that cause their learning to slow down, but builds this more conceptual scaffolding that allows them to then learn to stack relevant things in that framework going forward. What does that tell you about the vast majority of, say, public school teachers who are teaching to the test? It's a huge problem. I mean, what you're going to do is you will improve how students do on that test, but that's not really what you care about, right? What you care about is is what psychologists call transfer, which is the ability to take that knowledge and apply it to situations you've never seen before. So one of the one of the strategies in the book is called interleaving, which basically means instead of practicing the same thing over and over and over. Look, I highlighted there interleaving. There you go. There you go. So instead of practicing the same thing over and over and over, what you want to do is essentially diversify the challenges, like make the problems really different. This, this gets to a classic research finding I discussed in the book called breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. The, the more varied your training is, the less you're doing the same thing over and over, the more able you will be to apply that knowledge to situations you've never seen before. And so we even think of things like professional development. When I've been through it, it's like, you get this like one bout of something that you kind of do over and over and then you leave it forever. And the best way to do it is to be constantly mixing up challenges, which is frustrating, but helps your ability to transfer the knowledge and then to incorporate spacing. You want to make it easy to make it hard on yourself while you're learning. And spacing is just what it sounds like. So in a, in a famous study of spacing, Spanish vocabulary learners split into two groups. One group got eight hours of intensive study on one day. The other group got four hours in one day, four hours a month later. Same exact total study time. Eight years later, when they were brought back, the group that had the spaced practice remembered 250% more with the exact same amount of practice. Mm. That's totally different than what we normally do in school or in work. You do a topic and then you move on to the next topic. What you want to do is split all this stuff and mix it all together, which is frustrating, but forces you to build these more conceptual models that scaffold later knowledge. I love that. Talk a little bit about how the generalization versus specialization, how that now translates into career. Because, you know, we have, I, I am much older than you are, but when I was brought up, it was sort of like, go get a liberal arts education, figure out what you want to do. And you might fart around a little bit and go one way or go to the other way, zigzag, whatever. And now it seems that we are asking our younger generation of, you know, let's say Gen Z or whoever comes next to find specialization, like go to code camp, mm -hmm. become a coder. What is the problem with that model? And what is the advantage of more of the generalists? Let's just call it like, you know, there was a guy who wrote a book in praise of the liberal arts education. So give us both sides of that. Yeah. And I actually decided to, that was Fareed Zakaria's book. And, and I decided to proactively stay away from that because I didn't want to prescribe a certain course, but rather that just people people should be broad. And one of the main advantages, not that there's anything wrong with coding at all, one of the most important advantages has to do with what economists call match quality, which is the degree of fit between your interests, your abilities, and the work that you do. And that turns out to be incredibly important for your long-term motivation and for your productivity. And so, for example, one of the economists in the book decided to study specialization timing in colleges in different countries. And looking at some countries where students have to specialize earlier and some countries where students 
can experiment a little bit in college. Or, so, and, and some of those countries have very similar, otherwise have similar education systems, like England and Scotland, where in England, they, students kind of mid or late high school have to decide what they're going to be doing in college. In Scotland, they can keep experimenting. And he said, who wins this trade-off? The early specializers or the late specializers? And it turned out it was the late specializers. In fact, the early specializers do jump out to an income lead when they graduate because they have more sort of specific skills. The later specializers who sample different things end up optimizing their match quality more, doing better, picking a better fit. By six years out, they have caught and then surpassed the early specializers in income, Mm. while the early specializers start quitting their careers in much higher numbers. Because basically they had to choose so early that they made many more wrong choices. So I kind of liken it to if we thought about careers the way we think about dating, and and we spend as much time with our careers probably, maybe more, we would stop telling people that it's a good idea to like pick something early and and stick with it. Because as we know, once you get a little more data and learn a little more about the world, you can match yourself a lot better. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because So I'm a zigzagger, Mm -hmm. and um, I'm wondering... Is there any way that we can figure out how to find that match quality? And, yeah. and, or is it just you have to do a bunch of things? So I, I think there's some of both. It, it for sure is not as tidy a prescription as pick a thing and just do 10,000 hours. Right. That's why this topic of career searching and matching is like the one topic that gets two chapters in the book. While it's not an easy prescription, one of the, the quotes that most stuck in my head is from a woman named Herminia Ibarra a teacher of London Business School who studies how people find good matches. What she said is, we learn who we are in, in practice, not in theory. And th- that's not just an adage she made up. She, this is based on a, a huge amount of psychology research that shows that we are actually not very good at simply introspecting without experience about what we are good at and what we will like. What she means by we learn, in pract- we learn who we are in practice, not in theory, is that there's this huge complex of uh, career gurus and and personality tests, uh, some of them very famous, that say, take this test and we'll tell you who you are. But the psychology research shows very clearly that who you think you are right now and your insight into your abilities and interests is constrained by your roster of previous experiences. And that you have to try things and then reflect on them, which is called self-regulatory learning, and then you do that and zigzag more and more and more and more, and that's how you find match quality. And her findings are exactly borne out by the so-called Dark Horse Project at Harvard, where researchers, again, were studying how people find careers. And in this case, they were focused not only on success, but also on fulfillment. They didn't say, here's my long-term goal I'm sticking to. They said, here's who I am right now. Here are my skills and my interests. Here are the opportunities in front of me. Here's what I'm going to try. And maybe a year from now, I'll change because I will have learned more about myself. And, and if you don't do that, it's like what investor Paul Graham says, if you just pick a long-term goal and stick, it's what computer scientists call premature optimization. And, and I liked that analogy. And what's interesting about that is it kind of takes the pressure off because then you can, as you said, you know, you can look at the, the what's available to you. Because obviously, if you're, it's 2009, you're graduating from college. Mm-hmm. Even if you said, I wanted to, I thought I wanted to do blank, but now you're graduating into a recession. And so you say, I don't really have a choice. I'm just going to get a job. You shouldn't be freaking out or the parents shouldn't be freaking out that, oh, my God, you're you're off track. And yeah. also, isn't it more acceptable in this era to jump around into career and jobs? It's much more prevalent, isn't it? It's totally. I mean, and in fact, I think it's more prevalent even starting with the late baby boomers. So Bureau of Labor Statistics data shows that starting with the late, the very late baby boomers is sort of when this more itinerant career stuff started. And that that cohort had about 12 job, different jobs on average from ages 18, 18 to 50. And now it's now it's even more so, right? And so 
there's something else I mentioned in the book that's relevant to this called the end of history illusion, the psychology finding that, that shows that we all realize when we're asked, have we changed a lot in the past? We say, yes, of course, on all these experiences. But will we change a lot in the future? No, not that much, right? And we're always wrong. We always change more than we think. And so when we're, you're asking people to, like, pick their lifelong career, it's asking them to pick for a person they don't yet know and a world they can't yet conceive. And so there is very little chance that they're going to optimize their match quality if that's what they do. And if you were going to give advice to somebody who is looking at optimizing match quality, it would just, it would in fact be try, don't worry. If you quote unquote fail or you get bounced out of a job or you hate it, you get another job. But the one word I would also add to that is reflect because this characteristic of these so-called self-regulatory learners who do over time get more insight into themselves and more accurately assess their own strengths and weaknesses the way that that sort of their own managers do, they take a little time to reflect on those experiences. They make sure to have some insight into it and to use it for the lessons. I mean, for me, like I was I was training to be a geologist in grad school, right? And I started to realize, okay, A, that I was getting way more narrow than I wanted to be, mm. you know? So I started to get insight in myself and say, am I the type of person who wants to spend my whole life learning one thing new to the world or much shorter spans of time learning things new to me and translating them and that my advantage over the other scientists all had to do with like communication and writing and wanting to read outside my domain. I was hoping that I would just fall in love with that career and that's what I was assuming but it turned out to be a great lesson in teaching me why that wasn't the best fit for me. This is Jill on Money. We'll get back to our interview in just a second. Now, if you've been listening to this show, you probably recognize that it's me, Jill, Jill Schlesinger. I'm also a certified financial planner, a CBS News business analyst, and yes, the host of this podcast called Jill on Money. Okay, today I am here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Despite the taboo, money is not only personal, it is social. Marcus serves up financial tips, insights, and inspiration to help you get better about your finances. And you can join in on the conversation by following at Marcus by Goldman Sachs on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or at Marcus on Twitter. Every follow is a financial step in the right direction. You can money. And now back to our interview with David Epstein. When I go back in time, I started my career because my dad was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. My godfather was a trader on the New York Stock Exchange, which meant that in high school and summer and college summers, that's what I would do. And so, of course, that's what I did. I remember so like crystal clear memory that I built the the proof of the thesis like Jill should become a trader. And I built the proof to support this idea. Then I got there. I didn't really like it. I was kind of miserable. And so then I left the trading floor and I went into financial planning, investment management. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple of dopey jobs along the way, but, <laughs> but, you know, they were fun, you know, and, and I learned, I did learn a lot. One was horrible and one was fun. I remember then saying, okay, well now, uh, you know, I'm in my late twenties and, uh, I, I have to get serious. And so I'm going to pick a career called financial planning, investment management. And I did that for a number of years. And I thought, this is it. This is my life. But what I really learned And as I now reflecting on it, those were great jobs for as long as I had them. But there were aspects of it that were terrible for me and for my personality. They really didn't match, which, you know, I was 
over-involved. I got too emotional. I got worried when people didn't take my advice. I couldn't sleep at night because I thought like, oh my God, David didn't buy enough enough life insurance and he's not buying enough and now I'm worried and what happens? And and all of that was just not a good match because I was so hyper about it. But I know that if you asked me 20 years ago, is this the career for your life? I would have said, absolutely. Let me tell you all the reasons why. So what can we do to kind of help people pick their heads up a little bit and reflect more in real time? Is it possible? I think it is. And and by the way, I doubt if you asked you 20 years ago, you would have said, oh, podcasting, right? right. That's because you just don't know what's going to be there. But I bet you took a lot of those lessons, right? Because now the very lifeblood of what you're doing has to do with like diverse interests and being able to ask. I mean, look at me. I'm I'm probably an unusual guest for the things you're looking at, but you can still engage with these ideas in ways that are totally relevant to you and your listeners. Um, and so I think the reflection in real time is absolutely real and should be done all the time, right? Like this, this is old hat for elite athletes where they keep training journals. They start getting insight into themselves from like having to write things down. And so I, I do that for myself with all the work I do now. I mean, I call it a book of experiments basically based on Herminia Ibarra's work because she says you should set up experiments of yourself where you have a hypothesis of here's the skill I think I'm going to learn. Here's what I think I'm good and bad at and then assess it like rigorously and objectively. And so I do that now. And the other thing I think is that we should not consider those those experiences where you thought something was going to be your career mm -hmm. and it isn't to be bad because you will use that knowledge. It's not a sunk cost. Like we're so obsessed with precocity, right? You look at like Mark Zuckerberg, for example, right? At 22 famously said, young people are just smarter. Yeah. And then there's just brand new research from MIT, Northwestern and the Census Bureau that shows that the average age of a startup founder of a blockbuster startup on the day of founding, not when it becomes success, on the day of founding is like 46. They usually have to zigzag a lot first, but just like the Roger and Tiger story, it's only the Tiger one that gets told, even though those are the exceptions, not the norm. And so I think we sort of need to drop that obsession with precocity and get to zigzagging and realizing that the zigs and the zags, in addition to getting you towards your match quality, provide you with this breadth of skills and the world's changing and breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. And that's why it's very interesting because I find that older employees... And so when I owned my financial planning and investment firm, I found that the older employees were so much more interesting and actually valuable because what they were able to do essentially was bring all these different life skills to their clients, right? And, and really talk to them and understand them. Because even if you were the smartest 29-year-old certified financial planner, simply because you're 29, you are not going to be able to do what someone who's 59 can do. That's right. Young people do score better on tests of so-called fluid intelligence. You actually don't really care about that. Like that's that's useful for for rapid learning of certain things. But when it actually comes to doing the job, you care more about crystallized intelligence, which is like actually knowing things and having actual scaffolds for knowledge that you can fit new problems into. And older people do better on crystallized knowledge, which may seem like less sexier, but is actually what you care about when you're doing the work. All right. Let's go back to one um, last question that I have around, because you brought up Mark Zuckerberg before, and we're, I guess that, that that I have like this, this strain of anxiety around a lot of these, the young guys who build these companies and they think they're so powerful and they want to, you know, move fast and break crap. It worries me that they are not zigzaggers because they come to these organizations that they are now mammoths. Mm -hmm. And do they have the skill set to run it in a world that's so much more complicated than they could ever conceive? Yes. This gets to a really like one of the underlying themes of range that I think is a tremendous problem for society at large, which is that 
when Mark or whoever does what he does, it seems to lead to this assumption that because he figured out the algorithm for a social media site, that he has somehow figured out the master algorithm of life and can do anything else without having to be interested in other things. And I think this also gets the difference between generalists and dilettantes again. The generalists I'm describing in this book are people who are genuinely interested in many different things. Whereas what I see, perceive in a lot of these younger tech founders is they learned how to make a website work. Therefore, other things are just systems. They can make those other things work. We see this a lot in medicine where when Mark Zuckerberg said we're going to cure all disease within 100 years, one of the interventions he mentioned as being groundbreaking was cardiac stents where you, you open up the blood vessels and, and, and can save people's life during a heart attack. But it's much more commonly used when someone has stable chest pain basically because they have chest pain, they have a narrowed artery, you prop it open, how could that not work? And it turns out a dozen randomized controlled trials have show, shown it does not work. What you care about is those people having heart attacks or strokes or dying, and it turns out they have heart attacks and strokes and die at the exact same rate just with a more, one more open blood vessel. It isn't a website. We didn't design the human body. It's much more complex. There's all this interacting stuff. And so I think this sort of lack of curiosity and other things that because you had this big success and all these people around you, I'm sure, you know, become sort of yes people, um, that you don't have to have a curiosity or a holistic view of things. And I think that's really, really dangerous that we allow people to have success in one area, often in a, in a kind environment, maybe, and assume that somehow they've just figured out the code to life and it translates yeah, everywhere like, else. Like I'm going to throw a hundred million dollars at the Newark school system and fix it. Yeah. How'd that work? Money was one piece of a much more complex problem there. And so I think it was naive to assume that that's what was going to fix the problem. And if you looked at that, like there are a lot of places where money is not the problem and there's still school system issues. So I think that was a, a lack of appreciating historical context. Another part of range deals with people who are, let's say, specialists yeah. and their ability to maybe look at uh, what could happen in the future. And they they do kind of sell themselves all the time. I get pitched like, well, you know, Joe can come on your show and Joanne can come on your show and she'll tell you where the market's going next. Yeah. Tell me about that. So this is the topic of chapter 10, this political and economic prediction. And unfortunately, it's probably a pretty good heuristic that if they're getting pitched to you, they probably are not good forecasters. They may have made a good prediction in the past, right? But there's not good accountability for all their bad predictions. Chapter 10 follows a 20-year study where a psychologist looked at expert predictions about geopolitical and economic phenomena. He had to get 82,000 concrete predictions, specific probabilities with end dates, because you have to separate luck from skill, you know, streaks, so you need lots of predictions. And what he found was that there was basically an inverse relationship between confidence and in many cases credentials and, and forecasting ability. So the worst forecasters, what he called the hedgehogs, were people who had spent their entire career working on basically one problem and began to see every issue through that one lens and so no matter what they were predicting, and they had so much information in that narrow lens or that narrow area that they could fit any story, any time to their, to their theory. And they were such bad predictors that they got worse as they accumulated <laughs> credentials. And not only that, when you make a prediction and it turns out wrong repeatedly, you're supposed to update those beliefs. You know, it's this Bayesian thinking for people who are familiar with that. The worst specialists, the most narrow specialists, would update in the wrong direction, where when they would get stuff wrong, they would reinforce their previous beliefs that sent them wrong. They would always just say, I was just wrong by a little, or the timeline was just off, right? This is what a lot of investment yes. is. Like, I was right, the timeline was just right. off. Right, I told you the tech stocks were going to sell off, but you told me three years before they actually did. If the timeline is off, you are wrong when it comes to these sorts of things, and you're not accountable, right? I love whenever I see, like, in business press, someone says definitely maybe, or a strong possibility. Like, there's surveys that show a strong possibility people view as between, like, 
40% and like 90%, so you don't <laughs> even know. The, the people who are the best predictors, who outperformed even intelligence analysts with access to classified data, were people drawn from the general public who had not no access to classified data, obviously, very wide-ranging reading habits, were very self-conscious about the fact that they were not experts in any area, drew on specialists for information but not for opinions, and synthesized all these mental models of the world to make predictions. And they, they beat the, the CIA, the FBI, and, and, and certainly all the, the financial forecasters. Oh, that's good to keep in mind. Yeah. Next time you uh, hear someone hawking something on CNBC or uh, Bloomberg. What we're often seeing on some of these, sometimes in the business press, is this is the guy who predicts the financial crisis. Oh, yeah. But how many people made predictions? I know. And, and how many other wrong predictions did that person make? All right, let's close this out with... Um, your flip side question because you said your best money career decision was zigzagging yeah what was your worst my worst career decision oh that's a really good question gosh because even though i have no idea what i'm going to be when i grow up things are still managing to go pretty well um no no wait i know it's actually in the book when i was a science grad student because i i was funneled so quickly into very specialized knowledge and never taught how broadly scientific thinking is supposed to work, I have currently peer-reviewed published research that I'm quite sure is wrong now, <laughs> that I only learned about, and, and I disclose this in the book, which is kind of embarrassing. But so, so I got my you know master's degree in environmental science from Columbia for a thesis that I'm now pretty sure I committed statistical malpractice on, not knowingly, and this is published research, still out there. This is why we have what's called right now in science a replication crisis. Because a lot of famous work is not replicating. It's not because people are trying to do bad things. It's because they have not learned how scientific thinking works. And with the press of a button, you can do advanced statistics that you don't really understand because you've never been taught how scientific methodology is supposed to work. And so that's why science is in, in crisis right now. But the replication crisis is a great learning opportunity. It's crazy that only as a journalist writing about poor science, I realized I had done this and I didn't learn it as a science student. So that's that's not good that I have that research out there. Well, I'll just join you. And I, I wrote a book also and I outed myself with my worst mistake, which is I always now today say you should never time the market. But my one of my early mistakes as a professional is I tried to time the market. And so, you know, we learn, we reflect, we yes. shift. It's Co all very good. Cognitive bias doesn't uh, stop affecting you just because you're aware of it. No, absolutely not. You're listening to Jill on Money. It's time for the Marcus Minute, presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. You ready, David Epstein? Ready. What's one word to describe your relationship with money? Um, satisfied. What's always worth spending on? Time. What's the dumbest thing you've spent money on? Clothes. What sound comes to mind when you get a paycheck or an advance on your book? Money Jungle by Duke Ellington. Whose face would you put on the dollar bill? Oh, um, Sally Ride. It's your last day on earth, David. You've got a hundred bucks in your pocket. What would you do with it? Nothing. I'd go for a run with my wife. David Epstein. The book is called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks to David Epstein. Go out and buy his book, Range. Remember, we drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday, and sometimes a Friday bonus episode as well. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the best executive producer in the entire world. We're distributed by Cadence 13, and the show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week.